John, the same writer to the gospel we're studying, is being shown a revelation of the full, final, future state and place of humanity. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give him from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 1,200 stadia, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, 
And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will be the nation's walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of sun or or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And church, what I want us to see is that it is a real place. It has walls and foundations and buildings and roads and rivers and light. It is a place that is tangible and beautiful and amazing. And the center of that place is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world for us. And this is what I want us to understand when we talk about heaven and we talk about where we go when we die. There is just a sense in which we need to understand that when we die, before the Lord returns and ushers in the full and final state, we are going to something of a picture of this place. But this place doesn't occur until final, full glory when the new Jerusalem is ushered in and the new earth is restored and redeemed from what it was at first of all intended to be. And so that when we talk about heaven, we can talk about heaven in the sense of, yes, there is an already. Heaven is the place where Jesus Christ reigns and His redeemed worship Him. The new heavens and the new earth is the place that is full and final rest that we just read about for five minutes. And in that place, we will have a fullness of worship, a purity of worship, and an infinite amount of joy and gladness in the Lamb who constantly gives us light and pleasure and excitement and zeal that will be not only unending, but it will be fully satisfying.
makes me really excited. But let's pray and ask God to help us study John 13 and 14 in a way that makes us excited about this. Father, we pray right now that as we open your text for us, John 13, 36 through 14, 4, that you will give us hope and comfort and joy and passion and imagination and excitement and, and a fullness of faith that anticipates the day in which we dwell in the new Jerusalem and behold your glory and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Do this, we pray, for his glory and fame. Amen. So you can turn to John 13. Before we read the passage, I want to succinctly say that anxiety is an ever-present reality in our world. Worry. Deep trouble of heart is an ever-present reality, not only for the world, but also for Christians. We have anxiety about our family. We have anxiety about our children. We have anxiety about our job. We have anxiety about having enough money to pay our bills. We have anxiety about having enough money in order to retire one day. We have anxiety about taking care of our aging parents. We have anxiety about the possibility of having dementia or Alzheimer's. We have anxiety about what if something happens to someone that I, I love deeply. We have all of these anxieties that go on in our life and sometimes it causes us sleeplessness. Sometimes it, it causes us uh, significant rest and peace. Sometimes it causes relational turmoil and conflict and sometimes it, it causes us to fall into depression and, and constant states of discouragement so that we can't even lift our heads and our hearts above that darkness to enjoy what God has given before us. Anxiety is real. But let us not think they were the only people who have experienced anxiety. When we enter into the upper room on Thursday night of Passover week, and Jesus has already told His disciples that He is about to leave. That I'm going to go. And He says, just as I told the Jews earlier, that where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm telling you the same thing. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And in that moment, one disciple has already left to go betray Jesus. The other 11 disciples are sitting around saying he's been hinting at this and, and Peter's even squelched that, that idea some, but here he is, he's definitively declaring that he's going to be leaving us. There is significant amount of anxiety and worry and trouble in the hearts of these men who have left everything to follow after Jesus. And so, what now? What, 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 what do we do? What do we say? How, how do we respond to that? Well, let's read. In verses 36 through 14, 4. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, Master, 
Where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I will take a knife for you. I will be stoned for you. I will be thrown off a ledge for you. Just give me the chance, Peter says. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. We see in this passage two significant interactions. We see an uncomfortable conversation and a comforting exhortation. An uncomfortable conversation and a comforting exhortation. Let's look first at the uncomfortable conversation and see what the Lord wants to teach us here. Simon Peter asked him, so where are you going? Now church, look back down at the text, if you don't mind, because Jesus has just said, listen, I, I'm leaving, I'm out, I'm going away, but this is what you need to do. You need to love one another just as I have loved you so that the world will see our love. They'll see your love. And the implication is they'll be drawn to that kind of love. And Peter, instead of honing in on this command and instruction to love in order to demonstrate the greatness of Jesus to the world, he completely ignores it. He completely says, that instruction, I'm I'm not even worried about that. I've got to know where in the world are you going? So he's got this question and he's so fixated Not only on Jesus leaving, but the idea that he's going to go with Jesus. Peter doesn't have a category in his mind that somehow he will be separated from Jesus at any point for the rest of his life. Where are you going? Where are you going? And if you can think, if you can think, church, he's not thinking You know, is he descending to the heights of heaven or is he descending to the depths of hell or is he going to do something else? No, he's thinking, are you headed south? Are you headed north? Or are you headed west? Are you headed east? I mean, are you headed back up to Galilee to see your folks? Or where are you going? Because I'm going to follow you. And if you're going to leave me now, I've got to catch up with you at some point. Where are you going? And Jesus answers him, not with a direct answer to the direct question, but with a more important answer, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. Now, he said that to the unbelieving Jews twice before in 735 and 821. But he doesn't follow it up 
with the comforting reality of, but you will follow afterward. What what is Jesus' answer implying? Jesus is saying, Peter, I've got to go and do my thing. I've got to leave. I've I've got to be hurt and tried unlawfully and betrayed and beaten and I've got to walk up to Calvary and I've got to pay the penalty for sinners like you. I've got to experience the righteous judgment of my father. I've got to experience the wrath that belongs to all sinners that I'm going to receive on your behalf. That's not something that you can do. And then I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be ascended into heaven ultimately after my resurrection. And this is the deal is that now we're reading into the realities of what Jesus actually tells John in John chapter 21, but you will follow me afterward. You will follow my life. You will take up your cross and deny yourself and follow after me. And in fact, you will follow me to a a faithful person's death. And then you will be with me where I am. That's his answer. But Peter, distraught, surprised, discouraged, he responds with with a question and a declaration. Look at verse 37. He says, Lord, Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And and church, this is what we need to know. Peter means every word that he says right here. I believe that if there had been some soldiers or a mob that started banging on the door of the upper room at that moment, that Peter likely would have been the very first one to meet those people at the door and not let them get Jesus. I will lay down my life for you. I believe he is confident, he is zealous, he is earnest, he's real, he's genuine in this statement. But what he doesn't still understand is that Jesus is on a mission. It's a substitutionary, sacrificial, mediatorial mission that Peter in no way can fulfill. Only Jesus, the God-man, can do. And so Jesus responds with a question of his own and a declaration of his own. He says, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Really? Because I'm going to tell you the truth right now. Before the roaster crows, you're going to disown me three different times. Now, I think there's some irony I think there's some irony in this response from Jesus to Peter. First of all, Peter's not the one that's laying down his life for Jesus. Jesus is the one who's about to lay down his life for Peter. But then there's a deeper irony as well because Peter does in fact go on three decades later and as a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus And because people hated his testimony of the gospel, they did persecute him and they did crucify him because of his testimony for Jesus. There's irony is rich. But Peter is stunned. He can't believe the words out of his Savior's mouth that he will deny his Savior three times in the next 12 hours. It's a very uncomfortable conversation. It's a very 
Very difficult to enter into this interaction that is going on at the table, in the upper room, after the foot washing, after the kiss, uh, after uh, Judas leaving to go betray Jesus. It's uncomfortable. When we ask the question, why would, why would John write this account down? if it makes Peter look bad again. I ask questions sometimes like that when I study a passage during the week. Why, why would John even write this down? Why, why is it even necessary for it to be given? And, you know, church, you guys know a lot of these very basic answers. Number one, because it happened. It's historical fact. Number two, because the Holy Spirit inspired it. Like this, this is God's word. This is not merely John's word. This is what God wanted written and what he wanted remembered and what he wanted studied. The third, and I think getting to a, a deeper reality and a deeper, honestly, application for you and I is that we see accounts of Peter. We see his confidence and his zeal and his passion for the Lord Jesus time and time again. And at the same time, as we read through the pages of the Gospels, we see his, his fleshly confidence, his uh, ignorance, his uh, audaciousness, and his bravado, and, and we see all of this, and we see his failures, and, I mean, listen, this is the reality with old Peter. Nobody gets rebuked by the Lord Jesus more than Peter does, but nobody gets praised and encouraged more than Peter does either. What we need to see in this passage is not merely Peter. We need to see ourselves in Peter. We need to see the reality of our own duplicitousness. We need to see in ourselves our own sureness and confidence in ourselves and in our faithfulness. I mean, in all honesty, y'all, have you ever seen another brother or sister fall, commit terrible sin, and you say to yourself, I just don't think I would ever do that. That's Peter, and that's you, and that's me. I mean, y'all, the only thing that keeps us from doing whatever that thing is that you thought about is the grace of the Lord Jesus and the power of God and you walking in the Spirit day by day. I tell you what, don't walk in the Spirit one day. Let God remove His protective grace from you one day. Let a spiritual attack happen, and you're not ready, and He's going to allow it, and let's just see what kind of sins you can commit. We need to see in ourselves this man who is so strong and so confident and is full of faith and loyalty, and also Jesus putting him in his place and saying, no, are you really going to lay down your life for me? Because I actually know the future and I know what you're about to do and you're going to disown not only the fact that you're my disciple, but that you even know me and you're going to curse while you do it. This uncomfortable conversation, I believe the Holy Spirit intends for us to see that we desperately need 
grace. We need the grace of the cross. We need the grace of the resurrection. We need the grace of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We need the grace of God's protection and His guidance over our lives. And we need the grace of church people who are helping us and encouraging us and training us and loving us and holding us accountable. We need grace because but by the grace of God, so will we go. It's an uncomfortable conversation that is to drive us to the foot of the cross to cling to Jesus and ask for His grace every single day. Jesus doesn't wait for a response. He then opens up the conversation to the other uh, other ten, the full eleven disciples at this point, and He provides a comforting exhortation. They're troubled. They're downcast. They're worried. They have anxiety, and he immediately says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He really has a negative plea and then a positive plea. Let not your hearts be troubled. Listen, Jesus' heart is troubled. He said, it, John has said it twice already in chapter 12 and then again in chapter 13. Jesus is trouble. He has an angst of soul. He has an anxiety of heart because he knows what he's facing. The shadow of the cross is looming over Jesus at this moment. He is about to taste the very wrath of God. He's about to taste the wrath of man. He's about to endure excruciating, terrible physical pain and excruciating, awful eternal pain on the cross of Jesus and he is troubled of heart but he tells those who follow him don't you be troubled because I'm going to endure what belongs to you and I'm going to suffer what is your lot and I'm going to experience what you ought to experience so don't you dare dare be troubled and have anxiety because I'm doing what I'm doing to relieve you from all of that feeling that's going on inside your heart. Now, this is getting very technical, but on the positive side of this plea, some of your versions may say it a little differently. Now, I apologize for the technicality here in about 60 seconds, but there are two there are multiple moods in the Greek language, but two of them are the indicative and the imperative. Indicative is like a statement of reality. John hit the ball. Okay, that would be an indicative statement. John, go hit the ball. That would be an imperative statement. One is a statement of reality. The other one is a command. Okay, sometimes words in Greek will be spelled exactly the same way and they're intended on one side to be an imperative and then at other times they're intended to be an indicative. This this whole thing about believing twice here, that's one of those words. It could be indicative. It could be imperative. And this is what I want to tell you. After studying this week, this is what I believe. I believe that Jesus is giving us an indicative in the first statement and an imperative in the second statement. The indicative is you believe in God. 
You've, you've believed in God practically your whole life. You grew up worshiping in Judaism and you know realities of the Bible. You believe in God. You believe in his goodness and his grace and his kindness and his power and his sovereignty and his wonder and his purity and his holiness. You've read Isaiah. You've read Deuteronomy. You've read Exodus. You believe in God. You have lined yourselves up with God. And because of that, I now am commanding you to believe also in me. For who I have revealed myself to be to you every single day for the last three years. The works that I have worked are the works of God. The message that I have preached is the message of God. The love that I have extended to you is the very love of God. The power that I have bestowed upon me is the very power of God. You believe in God? Hey, believe also in me. Now, if we were going all the way down to verse 6 today, you would see the connections that Jesus is making about himself and about him being the power of God, the path to God, and the way to God. But what he is saying is, have I not proven myself, 11? Men, I've loved you. I've done miracles with you. I've done miracles for you. I have given you the ability to perform miracles yourself. You have gone out to the masses and you have done amazing things. I have given you a prophetic message. I have told you what is about to happen. I have told you about what is to come in the future. Listen to me. If you can believe anybody, you can believe me. And if you believe God, then you definitely should believe me. So I want to give you this encouragement. Don't fall prey to anxiety. Don't fall prey to worry. Don't, don't, don't just rack your brain and twiddle your hands and, and get all anxious and worried and fretted because of your life and your circumstances and your problems and the what if this happens and what if this happens and what if this doesn't happen and what if that doesn't happen don't get concerned with all of that because you have seen me you know me I come from God trust me and it'll be fine he now gives the promise and the promise is multi-fold here he says in my father's house are many rooms we need to observe a few things about that statement first of all whose house is it it's right it's the father's God the father's it's the father's house and and it is a house. It is the basic word for house in the original language. It's a house. If you were to, if you were to think of yourself as a first century follower of Jesus, and he said in my father's house, there is a certain kind of mind uh, set that would happen where the person would really think about a house. And, and Jesus says in my father's house are many rooms. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, and maybe possibly the, the New King James Version, there's just a little bit of a, of, of a problem there because he's, he, some of your versions may say mansions. Mansions. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's a house. And in this house, there are many rooms or suites, if you want to call it that, or dwelling places that are attached to that house. 
The picture is not that you live on 45 acres off away in in the heavenly abode somewhere with a gated community and you're all by yourself. That, That is not the picture that Jesus is painting. Jesus is painting a picture of the Father's grand house and that as He adds people to His kingdom, to His dwelling place, He adds rooms to His home so that people who believe and trust in God and in God's Son, Jesus, will be in that house. Now, lest we start thinking in a confined way, we know that God's house is big and glorious. And we even read about much of it in Revelation 21 and 22. But Jesus promises them that in his Father's house are many rooms. And then let's look at the continuing promise. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And this is what I believe, church. I believe that part of the preparation process is that Jesus has to leave. He has to be betrayed. He has to be tried. He has to be killed. He has to pay the penalty for sin. He has to be buried. He has to be raised. He has to be ascended. He has to mediate on our behalf. And He has to literally and physically prepare the place for us and for His disciples when they come. And this is one reason why I read Revelation 21 and 22 to you. There is just a sense in which Jesus is preparing a place for people who die before He returns and they go to Him, but He's also preparing that full and final place of that final resurrection so that when the disciples like Peter and and, and um, Matthias and these other disciples, when they die, they're going to be resurrect, their bodies are going to be resurrected one day, you're going to meet their spirit, and ultimately there will be this full and final and complete resurrection where there's the new heavens and the new earth. There's just that not yet, not yet for us, all right? But for some, like these 11 disciples, they've experienced the already, but not the full final not yet. That's the best I can do to try to explain that to you. But he's giving them this promise that you're going to be there. I'm preparing it for you. I'm working hard to not only redeem you on the cross, but to prepare a place for you in heaven so that you and I can be together. And y'all, that is the purpose Oh, that is the purpose of this. And I want you to feel this right now. Look at what he says in verse 3 toward the end. He says, not only will I prepare a place for you, and not only will I come again, but I will take you to what? Myself. That where I am, you may be also. Church, this is the beauty. This is the glory. This is the amazing thing. When we read Revelation 21 and 22, we read a lot about gold and diamonds and gems and pearls and shining seas and glorious cities and buildings and foundations and gates and walls and all of this amazing vision of what is transpiring in heaven. And we can, 
get so enthralled with that that we lose the very point and purpose of what all of that is. It is namely that the Lamb of God is at the very center of that city who is providing worship and light and love and glory and beauty and satisfaction and zeal for life for an eternity future. Listen, the deal is this. When you get heaven, you get Christ. And without Christ, you get no heaven. When I went on a mission trip to Peru in 2009, I was gone for about 12 days. It's the longest I've ever been away from Jamie and the boys. And I really enjoyed the mission trip. I taught in a seminary for the first week, and then we did evangelism the second week. And I really enjoyed every minute of it. But as the days built, I started to get homesick. And I I was staying in a dorm room by myself. And I was longing for home about day eight. And I still had all those days left. And I was thinking about home. I was longing for home. I was praying for home. All the while, all the while trying to be satisfied and in, enjoying the moment that I was in in Peru. I finally got on a plane, flew to Birmingham. And let me ask you this. If I, if I would have driven by myself to Austin Road, I'd, I'd made my way from Birmingham to Aniston to Austin Road, and I was able to take a shower in my own shower, eat my own American food, lay my head down on my pillow, and put the covers over my bed, and enjoy the confines of my quote-unquote home, but I have yet to see my wife or my kids. How am I feeling about right now? No, I want to tell you that Jamie and the boys met me at Birmingham's airport, and I form-tackled Jamie. I did. As the tightest I know we have ever hugged in our lives. Because this is what I want you to know. Home for me was not 280 Austin Road. Home for me was my wife and my three boys. I didn't care where we went. We could have gone to a a hotel in, in Birmingham. We could have gone to the mall. We could have gone anywhere we wanted to go because this was home for me. Now it doesn't discount the comfort of my house. But I want to tell you, home is where my heart is. And my heart is with Jamie and my boys. Okay? When Jesus says, I will bring you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, he is saying that your home is with me. And you will find satisfaction and joy and pleasure for all eternity because you will never leave my presence and I will never leave yours and there will never be an ending to this satisfaction but only a growing of it and an intensification of it because you will know me more and love me more the more you get to know me. If you're looking for a big idea, it is this, is that Jesus is a redeeming and preparing Savior. He's a redeeming and preparing Savior who leaves our presence temporarily 
so we can enjoy His presence eternally. He is a redeeming and preparing Savior who leaves our presence temporarily so that we can enjoy His presence forever and ever and ever. It is a great trade-off that He is not with us right now because we will be with Him forever and ever. And oh, by the way, in the meantime, He has sent His Spirit to be not with us but inside of us to guide us every single moment of every single day. I'll ask the music leaders to come up and I'll give you a couple of thoughts to consider church if you don't mind don't turn your your brain and your heart off just yet I'm just going to give it probably in 90 seconds here but listen to this number one know you're going to fail and that Jesus is going to forgive and you're going to mess things up he he's going to clean things up You're a failure. He's a savior. You're Peter. It's okay. He's Jesus. He'll take care of it. Two, instead of having great anxiety in your life, believe in Jesus. Believe that he's a great savior. So instead of having great anxiety, have and believe in the great savior. Third, look forward to beholding Jesus and being with him forever. Because this is a fact. This is absolutely a fact, church. The hope of heaven is not escapism. People all over the world are saying, oh, you just have to have a crutch. You have to have to uh, escape in your mind and your heart somewhere. And so you, you dream up and think of this thing called heaven so that it can be better than where you are. And they say, oh, this is all we've got. You better enjoy it now because when you put in the grave, it's all over. That is hogwash. God is eternal. He is infinite. From eternity past to eternity future, God exists. And we are made in God's image. And we are made for God's glory. And we are made to share God's joy for all eternity. That is our DNA. And so let us hope in the words of Jesus who says, I go to prepare a place for you, and that where I am, you will also be.